working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta. Today my interview is with Isabel De Leon, who is active on the Washington, D.C. scene, playing with original bands as well as doing freelance work. Isabel was born in the Philippines, but has spent most of her life in the D.C. area and attended the University of Maryland. She is currently the drummer for two different synth-pop bands, Prince George and Paper White, and the funk soul band Lion Eyes. As always, you can find us at WorkingDrummer.net, where you can check out past episodes and learn more about who we are and what we're about. You can also follow us on social media and share pics and videos of your gigs on Instagram using the hashtag WorkingDrummer to get reposted. Lastly, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher, and your ratings and reviews on those platforms are very helpful. Last week, Matt Krause did a great interview with drummer educator and software developer Joe Crabtree, and Joe is offering discounts on lessons and courses to our listeners. Visit joecrabtree.com slash join and enter the promo code WORKINGDRUMMER, and visit keycounting.com slash WORKINGDRUMMER. So there was a lot to dig into here, including Isabel's very musical Filipino family, diving into the jazz world in college, the DC scene, and her perspective as a woman navigating the male-dominated music business and the especially male-dominated drum world. So here we go with Isabel De Leon. I was actually born in DC. Oh, and yeah. Wow. I, my my family lived there for like the first four years of my life. And then uh, we moved. Where at? Sorry? Where? Uh, on Capitol Hill, actually, like on Fifth Street. Yeah, um, okay. My dad was a lawyer. Uh, he still is a lawyer, but he I forgot the firm he worked for. It was like, you know, he was a young lawyer just kind of like making his bones in D.C. Yeah. Um, but uh, we moved to Santa Fe when I was four. So, like, even though I was born in D.C., you know, Santa Fe is my hometown. I don't really yeah. identify with D.C. very with much. With D.C. It, uh, you know, it always, it always has like a, a special place in my heart, especially if the Redskins are doing well, which is <laughs> never, never, <laughs> you know, um, our hockey team did well this year. Right. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, so how, how long have you been there? So I actually grew up in Maryland, Okay. Uh, which is like right, uh, you know, right over the, whatever, over across the, river, the way. Right? Yeah. Um, and this area is interesting because they call it the DMV. Mm-hmm. Like D.C., Maryland, and Northern Virginia, like they all are on the Beltway, right. which is like this big highway that goes a big circle around all three states. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I grew up in Maryland in Montgomery County, really only about like 45 minutes outside of D.C., um, which, you know, I was used to growing up. It's actually not that far. Mm-hmm. Um, but like where I grew up was like kind of rural, suburban, like borderline between rural and suburban, like Damascus, Gaithersburg area. Um, so it was always interesting, like being in that kind of demographic and then like coming to the city because I actually went to high school here. Mm-hmm. So I used to commute like, you know, an hour each way every day. Oh man! And then, yeah. And then I went to college at University of Maryland, which is also not far from here. Right. Um, and then I pretty much just like, I stayed with my, I moved back with my parents after college and then moved to officially to DC last year. But I've always been hanging out here, coming here, like playing here, and yeah, know, yeah. Doing so stuff here. speaking of playing there, the the most recent thing I saw you doing was uh, 
this this huge production for Capital Fourth, uh, yeah. <laughs> which was like the big Fourth of July thing. Um, so talk about what, like your your performance there and what like the group you were part of. So it was really cool. Um, actually, a guy I went to Maryland with who was a percussion major texted me and he said, um, I just recommended you for something, you know, see if you hear out from anyone. Mm-hmm. And this lady named Kimberly, who is the contractor, reached out to me and I guess several other girls and basically said they're putting together an all-female drumline um, for one of the performers who was the singer Laura Elena, who was on American Idol. She was also She's also a big country singer now. And she was awarded like, you know, best new country artist this year or something. Right, right. Um, and I had never heard of her, but like, <laughs> you know, they, they sent us the track, they sent some music, they're like, okay, learn this, show up, this, these are the rehearsal dates, this is the show dates, these are the times that you need to block off. And I was like, cool, this sounds great. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we showed up first day of rehearsal, which was like the Monday before 4th of July, so two days before 4th of July, all of us had the music memorized. Um, and it's funny cause like when I showed up there, I actually knew more than half of them. A few of them were percussion majors from Maryland. Um, some of them I knew from the music scene here mm-hmm. and then, um, the others, yeah, music scene. I recommended one of them and then all that stuff. So it was really cool to like be in the presence of all these like lady drummers who are all professional drummers. Most of them were, um, orchestral percussion drummers. One of them was in the army band. Right. Um, but yeah, so it was cool to be surrounded by all these women who like knew their stuff and, you know, like when, when we were working out some of the arrangement parts with like, um, the NSO or whatever, they were like, you know, they were talking all this like technique stuff and they're like, Oh, what if we do this or this and this and this? And I was like, all right, girls, all right. <laughs> but it, was, it was awesome. It was really cool. It was really fun. Um, we all became like really close mm-hmm. and it was a great experience. And then of course, so we had our first rehearsal at this on-site hotel and then we went to the Capitol for the on-site staging and the camera practice or whatever. And it was like so hot. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, it, it just happened to be that one week in DC where it was like disgustingly humid and heavy. It was like a hundred degrees every day. Right. Right. And so, and you know, and we had these like giant, we just had, um, those like strap on drums mm-hmm. where it's just, a gu- almost like a guitar strap yeah and then you know we were just playing it's and then it was a snare drum but they detuned it to be like a tom-tom gotcha right and we literally played like 20 24 bars of this one song <laughs> yeah right. but you know but like for just that little thing it was like such a high production that like we had to run it so many times right. we had to like get the staging and the camera angles and all that stuff so you know as far as like high-end productions go that was definitely like one of those where like it's really tedious and stuff but really really fun and worthwhile and um it was great because we got to invite guests so i invited my parents and my nice. brother they yeah. got to sit in the vip section and they were like this, this is so cool and, <laughs> you got you the know. rock star treatment and, then, and it was great yeah and like you know they they had other great performers too they had jimmy buffett they had the beach boys they had the temptations and mm-hmm. like being able to be on that roster and then also like chat with them backstage was was cool. Yeah. It's it's interesting when you when you get into a production like that, you know, that's something for TV. Um it reminds me a, a buddy of mine was on um America's Got Talent a few years back. Oh, so was I. Were you really? <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Um, Wait, what season was he? <laughs> what now? What season was he? I don't remember. I think it was four years ago. He he played with Jonah Smith. There's a singer songwriter named Jonah Smith and and my buddy Jacob Deaton played guitar with him. But Jacob talked about the same thing. You'd rehearse like four days on 90 seconds of music. 
<laughs> yeah. Just going over and over and over yeah. so they could get the production of this whole thing right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's that, that was a crazy experience. Cause, and besides that, there's also just a lot of waiting around and you're like, what's going to happen now? Right, and, you know, right. they don't tell you what happens until like, all right, we need you up here now in like 10 seconds. We're like, ah! <laughs> but When were you yeah. on America's Got Talent and, and with whom? Uh, so that was... 2011 to 2012 mm-hmm. um and that was so i was in a band with my sisters like majority of my life and uh our last version of our band was called ivy rose and it we had a it was an all-female alternative rock band we had a friend of ours doing vocals and a guitar and um one of the producers actually i guess discovered us on youtube and reached out to us and asked if we could audition so we did a preliminary audition in dc and then we went to New York to do like the live audition on TV. Yeah. And, um, it was interesting because we like almost didn't make it, but at the very last minute, like somebody or the crowd was swaying, um, uh, miss, miss, Mrs. Osborne. What's her name again? Uh, Sharon Osborne. Sure, yeah. Yeah. She was <laughs> one of the, it was Sharon Osborne. <laughs> right. How, Howie Mandel and Howard Stern. And the crowd and Howie Mandel said yes. Um, Howard Stern said no. And you could we could see that Sharon Osbourne was kind of on the fence. But the crowd like really loved us and they like kind of swayed her. So she was like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And so like, you know, we made it to Las Vegas and all that stuff. And, you know, that was actually a really difficult experience because you know, they, some of the criticism that they gave us was some of the stuff that I guess we had kind of been insecure about, or we had feared. And, you know, for them to like say that to us, we were, it was just, you know, and definitely some of us took it harder than others. For Mm -hmm. me, I was just like, well, we made it. That's all that matters. But I understand like it, it became really difficult for some people to the point where things were never the same after that experience, just Mm -hmm. because, you know, the thing with those shows is that they want to, they want everyone to have a story right? and they want it to be interesting. So they were very much trying to pigeonhole us in the, oh my God, like all female rocker chick band. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, they were trying to have us play stuff we wouldn't normally play and like, you know, into a niche that wasn't really us. Right. And, you know, it, things weren't the same after that. And, you know, the band, not that that was the reason why the band dissolved. I think it just like brought to light some of the things that we had been thinking about for a while or, you know, people just kind of figured they needed to do their own thing for a little bit. So, right. And, and you mentioned the, the criticisms that they threw at you, like what, what were those criticisms and were they coming from the judges during taping or from the producers during, uh, you know, the conception of these shows? It was, it was from the judges, you know, they basically said that they felt that, the vocalist in our band, her voice wasn't strong enough mm-hmm. for like a rock band. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, our singer has an amazing voice. She's, she's actually like a really great singer songwriter based in New York now. And she's, you know, she had signed with like a label in the Philippines, like several years ago. So she pretty much took off and like had her own career and she's doing awesome stuff. And, you know, I guess that was always like an inse- insecurity and worry of hers was that her voice wasn't as strong enough as the instrumentals were in the right, band. Right. You know, that, 
that never really was the case. It was just the way her voice naturally is, is just more suited for a different sound of music. Mm-hmm. But they were trying so hard to make us this like hardcore rock band, all female, you know? Right. Right. And even the stuff that we played on there wasn't necessarily our style, but they, you know, we were like, okay, we're thinking of doing this and this and this. And they were like, no, you should do this and this instead. Right. And we had someone who was kind of coaching us, you know, trying to make us into that sound. So of course it didn't really like mesh in a way because that wasn't her style and that's not her sound. And, right. Right. You know, then that's what's difficult about those things is they always want a story or a certain look or a certain edge. And at the end of the day, like we just didn't have like that edgy story or that like, you know, heartbreaking, whatever. Right. I mean, they, they kind of, they fabricate a narrative for, for the, you know, whatever artist is on there. And then, and then they uh, kind of plug in content to fit that narrative. And a lot of times I think the, you know, the content and the narrative aren't actually, what that person or that group is made of. Um, really? uh, yeah. So, um, what, what are your, uh, uh, current projects in DC? So, uh, my main band is this group called Prince George. We're from Prince George's County, Maryland. Uh, <laughs> they grew up there. That's where I met them. Cause I went to college there mm-hmm. and, um, but they both live in Brooklyn, New York now and I'm in DC. So I go up to New York a lot. We have been releasing some new singles over the summer, and we have an EP coming out in the fall. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty exciting. Um, and it's like an indie electronic pop, synth pop trio. Yeah. So it's cool. Yeah, I yeah. get to do like, because we do a hybrid of acoustic stuff, but also electronic stuff. So mm-hmm. um, it's been really fun kind of experimenting with like a, a hybrid setup with that. Right. And then um, I also have started to play with this funk rock group called Lion Eyes that's based in Maryland. Uh-huh. And they're awesome. They tour mostly in Europe, um, and they have a huge following out there. Um, and then, you know, we do stuff on the scene locally, too, which is cool. Yeah, yeah. And then I also tour with this um, synth pop group called Paper White. They're also based in Brooklyn, New York. And it's actually a brother-sister duo, but the brother who was the drummer and producer wanted to take a break from touring, so I pretty much just like fill in whenever they're on tour. Right. Um and then so those are the three and then I recently started playing with this really great like Americana folk country singer named Lauren Calve. She's also based in the DMV area. Mm-hmm. Um and that's fun because it's everything I do in every different group is different, and yeah. that's that's what I want is just to be able to play different styles of music in different scenes. Um, and then you know while I'm in DC, I also freelance a lot, doing anything from like jazz to R and B to pop to rock to whatever. Right. So you know I try to keep it as diverse as possible and. Yeah, it, it it speaks to a, a city's scene when you know any any player can just rattle off you know a half a dozen projects that they're doing and they're all really musically diverse. That you know to me that says that there's there's a really vibrant music scene in that city, and that it's you know the city isn't saturated with musicians to the point that everybody is like dug in in their little corner of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, I, yeah. I spent five years in LA and I've been in Atlanta for the last two and a half years. Um, 
And in LA, it was like, it was the ladder. Every, you know, it was saturated. Everybody's dug in, you know, yeah. you got to find a thing and hang on to it. But since coming to Atlanta, I've, I've really found it much easier to kind of float between bands and styles and, you know, yeah. um, so it sounds like DC is, is, you know, much the same. Um, and you mentioned, uh, uh, freelancing around DC. Mm-hmm. I, I think the, a common perception about DC is that if, if you're a musician there, um, you're either, uh, like, a you know, a classical musician or doing the corporate band thing or in a military band. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I mean, it sounds like it has its own organic scene that there's a lot happening. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. I think people don't realize how many talented musicians are from DC. Mm-hmm. You know, we have guys based here who, like, you know, we have, you know, Aaron Spears, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like he's based in a suburb of Maryland in PG County. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he tours with like Ariana Grande and, and all these LA pop stars. Right. And, and, you know, we have musicians here who have toured with Prince, Maceo Parker, Stevie Wonder, like all these amazing musicians. And, you know, it's because what I realized is DC is such a great breeding ground for talent. Like this Mm -hmm. is really a great place to like hone in on your craft and get better at your instrument because there's so many opportunities for you to play. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's sessions happening almost every night of the week and there's just like a lot of gigs for people to do. So, you know, you can very much make a livelihood here out of playing music and it's great because there's just a there's a demand for it, and it's interesting because DC is like a, a pretty young city as far as developing. Um, you know, there's a lot of changes happening now. There is a lot of gentrification, unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, but you see a lot of the. I mean, even just in the last few months, like several different venues have opened up in mm-hmm. this whole new neighborhood, and you know, and that's brought more opportunity, more places for people to play, but also. Um, you know, different size venues that allow different artists to come here who might not have otherwise come here. Right. Um, so, you know, it's very much a working musician city, which mm-hmm. is cool. And, um, you know, it, it's cool because like I said, like those people who are touring with some of these great artists, they're still based here. So you still have a chance to play with them. You still have a chance to, you know, um, hang out with them, get better, learn from them. Right. And, network with them Mm -hmm. and essentially that's how i see you know me and like a lot of other musicians like really benefiting is like oh what if one day this guy can't make this gig and he's heard me play a thousand times he's seen me play he'd be like hey you should check out my friend so-and-so like Mm -hmm. they're really great and you know word of mouth and like that that's everything i think in the music scene so yeah yeah that's that's what i think what makes dc special and it also has its own kind of musical identity and musical history Mm-hmm. Um, as as like as far as the the go go thing and the punk mm-hmm. scene, um, yeah. I was watching a thing about Dave Grohl a few days ago, and I forgot that he's from DC. Like he's yeah. so, he's so strongly associated with Seattle, but he he grew up in DC, like playing yep. drums on the punk scene. Um, yeah, and is that is that still does does that history and that um, kind of blood type still inform the music scene there? Absolutely. I mean, I. I was the thing is I'm not as involved in the punk scene. Mm-hmm. I was a little more in high school, um, but you know it's definitely like you know people. Everyone knows what the 9:30 Club is, mm-hmm. right? I, I and don't. You don't? No. What is it? The 9:30 Club. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's like probably the most famous venue in DC. It's one of the oldest venues. It's a very historic venue. It's so it's in the it's in the U Street neighborhood. Uh-huh. Um, but it's in addition to being a venue, nine thirty itself as a production is really big. So they actually manage and plan all the shows at like various venues around DC. So they also do Meriwether Post Pavilion. They also do U Street Music Hall. Um, I believe not rock and roll hotel. They, they do like a lot of product, large production stuff. Yeah. Um, IMP is like, I think the name of their production company. Okay. Um, and, and then they opened the Anthem, which is the largest venue now in DC, the 6,000 capacity one at the right. Wharf. That's, and that's new, right? Relatively that's new. new. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, um, but they're like a super historic venue and, you know, most bands aspire to play there. And mm-hmm. like, if you get a headlining show there, that's like a big deal. But a lot of the punk scene um, in its formative days, like kind of grew out of there, like, you know, bands like Bad Brains and right. Minor Threat, they were doing like shows there almost every night and like selling them out. Yeah. You know, Dave Grohl played there a bunch of times. And sometimes when he does like surprise shows in D.C., it'll usually be at the 930 Club. Oh, cool, cool. Uh, yeah. like and, Hen- and Henry Rollins, too, right? think so. Maybe. M- Not sure. OK. Um, but yeah, but it, it's cool because also, you know, that era was kind of like in parallel with the go-go scene as well so you would see a lot of collaborations too like punk and go-go right and um you know like i know chuck brown played there a bunch of times too yeah, at yeah, the 930 yeah. and um now it's interesting because so we're really good friends with one of the bookers who used to be a booker for 930 club now she books one of the new venues at the wharf mm-hmm. and um, she's trying to like revive that whole thing so they've started doing these like go-go punk funk nights wow. at Ustream Music. They did one recently with um, Clutch and Rare Essence. Okay. I don't know if you're not even them, but they're... I'm not, I'm not hip. I... <laughs> they're just a like, funk rock band. They're based out of this area, too, I believe. And then um, Rare Essence is, like, one of the most famous go-go bands because they had, like, some a few hits that came out, and, you know, they've just been on the scene forever. Gotcha. So it's really cool to see, like... You know, I think a lot of people at least try to, like, you know, pay homage to the history that's come here and just, you know, try to preserve the music that's come out of the scene. Mm -hmm. Um, And so and that's what I love about the scene is that people are just very aware of all that. As far as your playing, um, what what do you consider kind of your uh, drumming blood type? Because you grew up in the D.C. suburbs, uh, but you're originally from the Philippines. So how does the, you know, the musical tradition of of your family and your your home country, uh, how has that kind of played out in your in your drumming life? Um, So, you know, I started music when I was four. My whole family and my whole family plays music, and a lot of that was because of my dad, mm-hmm. who loved music. And he built a recording studio at our house. He taught all of us like almost all the instruments. And then when I was about seven, and he brought home a drum set, he started, you know, basically being like, "Oh, which which uh, which instruments do you want to take lessons on?" But pretty much trying to steer us so that like one of us did drums, one did guitar, one did bass, and forming us into this little band, mm-hmm. basically. And, um, and, you know, he was like, he arranged all our music for us. He taught us 
how to play. He taught us the basics, but we all did private lessons too. And then we just, we were always playing music together. We played in church every weekend. We played cover songs. We played, I've played in, I've been playing in bars since I was like 12 years old. <laughs> and a lot of those street festivals were like Filipino festivals. So like Filipino Independence Day celebration or like different Filipino events where they were welcoming of that. And, you know, I think that relates a lot to the culture because in the Philippines, like they love music there mm-hmm. and almost everyone sings or does music in some way. In mm-hmm. fact, like there's this thing called magic mic. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Um, it's basically like a microphone. You hook it up to your TV and it's got like a little pad on it where it has a whole song bank. It's a karaoke thing. I have seen that. Yeah. Yeah. And like every Filipino house has that. Every party <laughs> you go to, they bust it out and it's like a huge singing competition because that's what they do. They love singing, but they also love performing. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are very talented and, uh, when we last went to the Philippines about seven years ago, we actually also did a tour there, my sisters and I, and our band Ivy Rose. So we toured the Philippines and you know got to play with a bunch of local bands and like at different venues. And there's so many great bands and talent that comes from that area. They just you know unfortunately don't have the same resources that we do here right. to like take it somewhere. Um, but you know I, I think that love of music was ingrained in my parents like even you know before they were together i mean my dad played music growing up just for fun Mm -hmm. he had his he had a jazz band with his friends he did concert band and then my parents actually met uh in the choir because like my mom was starting to do it and then my dad was the director of the choir Uh um but yeah so you know i think that's always been known to us of how much that came from our culture, that love of music and always performing. And I mean, I even remember like anytime we'd have part, like my family had parties, like we were expected to perform for everybody. And, like, <laughs> whenever we go to like a family friend's house, we were expected to perform for everyone, like do a singing dance number or something, right, right. you know, that's just, that's just something that's so ingrained in that culture that it's like expected that everybody does it. Mm-hmm. Um, was it expected so that, that you would have, that you would eventually make a living at it or was oh. it just kind of ingrained like this is going to be a big part of your life? Yeah. And, and that's, that's where it became like tricky because, you know, for most people, it, it's interesting because like they love music, but they don't, they don't want you to pursue it as a career. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember in the Philippines too, like, you know, there, there's a stereotype. If you're a musician, you're a druggie or like you are poor and all that stuff. And it's very different from what it is here. Like here, it's actually a refined art where you can make a living from, Mm -hmm. but they don't necessarily see that there. And I guess from, you know, whatever it was in the past or anything, but, um, it, it was interesting because once the band, once Ivy Rose kind of came apart, everyone started kind of going into what they wanted to do. My older sister was an architect. My younger sister is an engineer. And then our singer ended up moving to the Philippines, pursuing like a solo career. And then I still pursued, you know, I was like, I knew I wanted to do music since I was very young. So then I started looking for other bands to join and different, you know, just pursuing other music endeavors. And I could feel that my parents resisted that in the beginning Uh because it was almost like, they wanted us to succeed as a band together or mm. not, or not at all. Like mm-hmm. they wanted it, they liked it cause it was something that our whole family did together. You know, my dad was like our manager and like our sound person. Our mom always came on the road, like doing marketing and promo stuff for us. And they didn't want me to be a starving artist. Right. And, you know, pretty much starting from the ground up, trying to play with other people, be out on the scene and all that stuff. 
and you know, even now, like, I mean, I think now they finally accepted that's what I'm doing. And, you know, now they see some really cool stuff that I'm doing, but for a while it was definitely like, when are you going to give yourself a timeline of like when enough is enough and get a real job or like, you know, when are you, you going to, yeah, when are you going to get a real job and make some real money and all that stuff? And, right. you know, I always explain to them, you know, this is not like an overnight thing. Like I know what my goals are mm-hmm. and I'm working towards that, but it's, it's a journey. It takes time yeah. to build. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it was interesting because they supported me my whole life. You know, they got me instruments, they got us lessons. They were always pushing us to perform. That's all we did. And like, you know, we were touring even while we were in school. So like having to balance all that out while doing music was a lot. And then all of a sudden, like I'm trying to make a career in it. And they're like, ah, actually, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's but like I said, I think now they've, definitely come to terms with the fact that like i'm not giving up right right yeah um and you mentioned uh you went to the uh, university of maryland mm-hmm. did you go for music yes i was a jazz performance major and i also did a pre-medicine track oh okay was, yeah. I'm, I'm guessing the pre-med thing ended up not going anywhere <laughs> no i mean i worked in the er for like a year after did I you really I did. Yeah. Wow. I, I did a lot of clinical hours. I had interned at a bunch of different clinics and, you know, I pretty much with that was, I wanted to get all my prereqs done just in case I ever decided to go. Um, because it was something I was passionate about at some point in my life when I was young, mm-hmm. but you know, I saw music as more of a timely thing. Like this is now, right. now this is like when I need to pursue it. Right. And I could always go back to medical school if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was more to just kind of like get those prereqs out of the way. Right. So what was your experience as a, as a jazz major there? It was interesting. I was the only female in the department for a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think what made it most interesting though, was I came into it not ever playing jazz music in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I had a great teacher. He helped me prepare a great audition, but I had never, and I had never played in jazz band a combo i didn't know what trading fours meant i mm. you know anything i had done was like just in lessons but it's so different when you play in yeah. an actual and um i was so embarrassed like the first <laughs> week you know i was like great now everyone's gonna think i'm that chick drummer who like actually can't play right. and i remember calling my dad and being like i want to quit like no one wants to play with me i suck like i don't know what i'm doing because <laughs> i remember we had like our first combo rehearsal and then we were playing like some standard and i was like all right i'm just swinging along and they were like all right trade fours and i was like what does that mean and like they're looking at me everyone stops playing and i just really flopped like uh-huh. really bad and I was so embarrassed and literally my combo director was like, he's like, do you know what rudiments are? I was like, yeah. He was like, you should probably go home and practice those. And I was like, God. Oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> brutal. But you know, you know what? Like that whole experience was like what I needed mm-hmm. to get better because I realized I was like, I know nothing about this music, but if I'm going to stick it out here, I need to like catch up to where everyone is. Cause everyone there had already been playing in jazz band all of high school, mm-hmm. gigging already and stuff. And I had an amazing class, like the 
the people who like came in with me were really great musicians. So I was like, all right, first of all, I need to catch up to them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so that meant for me, I spent a lot of time in the practice room. Yeah. I was going like, you know, at least three hours a day, I was practicing late at night and just really like, you know, listening to stuff, trying to like really learn the music and just like get my chops up. I mean, I had really good chops from just like playing a lot of heavy rock music. But right. Like, I mean, I you just, were already getting around the drums. Yeah, exactly. I just didn't know how to apply them in this nuanced jazz way. Yeah. Um, so I, I practiced, I practiced my butt off that first year. <laughs> and by the end of the year, I was obviously a lot more confident and a lot more like comfortable. And by the second semester, I had been promoted to like the next tier big band, which was mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just getting more confident with the music, learning different standards and all that stuff. And then by my sophomore year, I got promoted to the top big band and also the top jazz combo. Yeah, cool. So that was, and then and then beyond that, like really digging into the music and finding my own voice and like realizing like, you know what, like. I've always leaned towards like an aggressive style of playing. Like I loved Tony Williams. I loved Sidney Blackman, who was yeah. basically protege of him. And I was, and you know, when I, I listened to a lot of like fusion jazz and I was like, wow, like this is a lot like the way I play rock music, mm-hmm. but I can still apply it here in a tasteful way with certain, you know, paying more attention to dynamics and articulations and voicings and stuff. And, um, that was pretty much how I kind of came to, I guess the the style, the way that I play like now. And that was like in the last two years of school, just really trying to hone in on like my voice. And even though it was different than what most people were playing, mm-hmm. you know, it was, I was commended because it was my voice right. and that was my style. Right. And, you know, I still, I still, my teacher Chuck Red was awesome because he really wanted to take me through the, through the tradition. So we did like a comprehensive study of like starting all the way back from like, you know, when, you know, Gene Krupa and Buddy Rich and those guys Papa and, then Joe really, and all that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And working our way up to like modern day. And, you know, it was very transcription heavy. Um, you also want like what I brought in to be like, I want to work on this or do this stuff. So it was a really great way to learn the music, but also help me kind of discover my voice. Yeah. And I, I think in, um, in a lot of college jazz programs, um, with, with a lot of college faculty, I think, um, like I went to grad school in Kansas city with Bobby Watson, who was like, uh, he was the musical director for the jazz messengers in the eighties. And, um, just this amazing musician, amazing educator. And I, I feel like I didn't get everything out of him that I could have because, after after leaving school, I realized like the the first tier is you know you go to school and say what should I do, mm-hmm. right? You just show up and you let them kind of fill you up with stuff. And the second yeah. tier is you you go to them and say uh, like you know I'm kind of interested in this. Do you have any recommendations about what I specifically should do? Like you know do you see things in me that you know, what, what route should I take, you know, make it more specific about you. And then the third tier is you go to them and say, I am interested in this. I want to go, you know, I want to dive deep into this. And then they're like, all right, man, let's, (laughs) let's get into it. Um, so it sounds like you eventually kind of got to that third tier where you kind Mm -hmm. of found a path and found a voice. And in terms of finding your voice, um, you mentioned like Tony Williams and Cindy Blackman. Did you, 
go through phases where where you were kind of uh, really heavily emulating certain drummers and and almost playing like a, a clone of those drummers? <laughs> yeah, I think I think you know in the nature of you know a lot of of just transcribing so many people. Mm-hmm. That's that's pretty. You know, they always say improvisation starts with imitation. Yeah. And then, you know, once you've done that with enough people, you kind of pick those things you like and blend it also with whatever your past influences are. And I, I felt like I was definitely doing that. I'm, you know, we kind of would take a semester to study one person or a few people. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was a time where I was doing a lot of Philly Joe stuff, Philly mm-hmm. Joe Jones stuff. And then there was a semester where we did a lot of Roy Haynes stuff. And I remember, especially for whatever reason, when we were doing him, like a lot of people commented on the time, they're like, Oh yeah, you're doing that snap crackle pop stuff. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, <laughs> but like, you know, and, and I loved his style of playing too. And I think, and you, and then you know there was a semester where we did Elvin and Tony and you know mm-hmm. but I guess in a way I kind of already had that some of that in me but you know I I think some sounds from some drummers stuck with me more than others mm-hmm. um just I don't know just out of muscle memory or maybe just out of like preferred style right uh, but yeah I, I I definitely think there were times where that was the case and um you know, even when I was really young, the very first drummer I ever emulated was John Bottom because mm-hmm. my dad's a big Led Zeppelin fan. Mm-hmm. And he brought home a book of Led Zeppelin transcriptions and he's like, all right, learn this one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that was like in the summer, that's how it was. He was like, all right, you can't go play outside until you learn this song. Mm-hmm. And then I have to play it for him. And then it was good. Then I could go hang out with my friends or whatever. Right. That was, that was just how it was. So like, and I remember when I was young, a lot of people commented, oh, you sound just like John Bonham. And it was just because I played a lot of Led Zeppelin. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and, and I think the, you know, finding your voice in your own version, those things come out like as you've, you know, played the music of a lot of different drummers and studied. And like I said, combine what you personally like with things you've taken from them. Right. Because you you know that it's worked for them and that it's hip. Totally, totally. I, I, um, there's a, there's a philosophy in, in music. Um, and I think especially in drumming that like, you know, you shouldn't, don't be an imitation. Don't be an imitation of someone else. Be your own voice, find your own original unique thing. And, you know, absolutely. We all want to do that. But like you said, improvisation starts with imitation. And if you can, you know, take a few drummers that, that really, turn you on and you're like identify with them aesthetically and if you can mm-hmm. live if you can just kind of live inside their head and inside their hands for a while um yeah. i think it's super helpful to kind of developing like you said just kind of curating aspects from different drummers and combining them into you know the sum the sum that is you i, I was gonna add one more thing to that i think one thing too that's really helped with studying other drummers is also kind of getting into their mentality and their method methodology right because mm-hmm. you know some some drummers are super rudimental some of them are super like you know just have great feel and some of them just you know come you know study this person or whatever and um you know one thing that really changed my life and my drumming was was doing um alan dawson's rudimental ritual hmm. are you hip I'm I'm hip to it I've not gone through it but I know I know about it I should probably go through it <laughs> 
you should go. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, the way that he, he taught his students to learn it was to memorize it. Mm-hmm. So you memorize it, uh, you know, by ear, but also like there's a transcription of it. Like he had a book out called the drummer's complete vocabulary and it has like a breakdown of all the rudiments you go through and then the actual ritual. Now, when you go through the whole thing, it's about 20 minutes long. There's like a lot of different sections and, uh, some of my later mentors in life, that was what they hit me to. They were like, you should learn this. Mm-hmm. And it really transformed the way I feel time in a mm-hmm. way, you know, then it became a thing of more of like, think about the macro phrase as opposed to like four, the four beats in, in one bar right. type of thing. And then that gives you a lot more freedom to just kind of play around with the timing in between mm-hmm. when you have four bars of time which essentially is 16 beats, right? Yeah. So however you construct those 16 beats and divide it is up to you. Right. And so like kind of getting me into that mentality is really what the the ritual did for me. Um, But also just getting behind the thought of really getting creative with the basic rudiments. And that's what it is. Like he goes through all the rudiments, but then he manipulates them, whether putting them over a different rhythm or putting them in a different kind of phrasing. There's a lot of like, three over four type of phrasing and that kind of stuff. Mm. And, and that kind of put me to another level of just being creative and creating my own stuff by like, you know, taking a rudimental pattern or taking a different pattern and then trying it in a different way or voicing it a different way Mm -hmm. or putting it on a different, um, rhythmic note to, to get a different phrasing. And, you know, I, I think that was one thing, like I said, it really transformed the way I play just because of thinking about and feeling time differently, but also just kind of taking that creative aspect from it. Yeah. And it sounds like it, it gave you a, a better sense for longer phrases of music, like, you know, yes. a, kind of an awareness of, of the arc of a phrase or the arc of a song mm-hmm. um, and, and being able to kind of construct and contribute to that instead of just yeah. playing one bar of time and another bar of time in this kind of static right static right. way um yeah yeah it what what you were saying reminded me of a of, of a couple of things um it sounds like your your jazz training um didn't result in a career in jazz drumming necessarily but what it did was was kind of develop your uh your musical sensibilities so that you can apply a a much more sensitive and acute um sort of musical awareness to all the music you play is that is that fair to say yes and you know i that was something that i grappled with for a little bit too because when i graduated i felt like there was all this expectation on me Mm -hmm. to be a jazz drummer right you know i had so many great mentors i did a residency at this performing arts center called strathmore as a jazz drummer mm-hmm. and you know and then i was doing a lot of that for a while on the scene and then i would but i was like you know what i don't think i want to be a jazz drummer per se like i studied it because i wanted to be a better drummer and to learn all the music and, and just to you know become learn how to improvise and all that stuff but i never wanted to be just that mm-hmm. and so in a way i kind of took a step away from the scene and you know that was also the same time that like Prince George came out and then I was like doing a lot of stuff with them and like started really touring and traveling a lot Mm -hmm. um and that was kind of like 
the break that I needed to kind of figure out like, you know, I want to do my own thing and be okay with pursuing what I wanted because it was my career and it was my life. And, you know, even if I disappointed mentors or followers or whatever along the way, it's like, you know, there's, this is my, this is my drumming career and right. this, and I want to play the stuff I want to play for the people who care about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, after doing that for a few years, I felt confident enough in the things I had accomplished and also just, you know, from practicing more and getting better, I okay, I'll just like dive in and play whatever I want and right. play everything, you know. Right. Um, but it definitely took, it took some time for me to be okay with that. Like, you know what, if, even if let's say I disappoint some people along the way, I'm still going to just do it my way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had a very similar um, experience where for, for you know, a, a good chunk of my young life, I really identified heavily as a jazz drummer. I got a master's mm-hmm. degree in it, um, and I was on the scene in Kansas City, and um, it, it, it did, like you, it took me a while to kind of shift my mentality and, and uh, change my perception of myself. You know, it's like mm-hmm. if, I'm, if I'm not a jazz drummer, what the hell am I? Um, you know, it's like, no, you can just be a drummer and play, (laughs) you know, play other stuff you're interested in. Um, and, um, the, the other thing that what you were saying reminded me about was, you know, like as soon as you got to college, um, you, you entered this jazz program and the drummers you gravitated to were Tony Williams and Cindy Blackman because they, um, were kind of the closest thing in jazz you could find to what you were already doing kind of the the aesthetic Mm -hmm. and the energy that you already were um attracted to as far as drums were concerned and i think when Mm -hmm. when people start studying drums or when they start studying jazz drums they think they got to start at the beginning (laughs) you know with with zuddy singleton and and move (laughs) you know move through the entire encyclopedia of jazz and like if if you're not going to have this this chronological mastery of all of these styles and all of these eras then it's not worth doing but um what I try to keep in mind and what I try to impart to students is that like, you don't, you don't have to start at the beginning. You don't have to like everything, you know, explore around the jazz universe, find music you like, find drummers you like. Um, it's, it's like the beer world, like people who don't think they like beer, like there's, there's something in the beer world for you. You know, if you like champagne, like there are plenty of beers and ciders that, you know, you can kind of enter into the beer world that way. Um, if you like whiskey, then you can enter into the beer world that way. Um, I think jazz is the same way. You don't, you don't have to take it all as one thing. You can, you can really explore around and, and find what you're into. Don't waste time suffering through shit that you're not into. (laughs) You know? Yeah. I mean, and you know, I, I think it's important to like, at least kind of know the general history and just like the evolution of things. But I agree. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, you don't have to spend like a year on whatever stuff you don't want to play necessarily. I think if you can just take little bits of it and understand like why it's important, why these, what these people did and stuff. And you know, what I love about jazz drumming and I think, and a lot of people don't realize this is really, it parallels the evolution of the drum kit. Mm -hmm. Like that was, that was how the drum kit started was because of jazz music. You know, they started finding all these different drums and experimenting with it and really 
that's how the drum set came about. And so I think, and I think that's important for people to realize and to understand like how that came about, right. how it transformed as different genres emerged. Mm-hmm. Um, cause you know, that's, that's the history of our instrument too. Right. Right. Um, and as far as the, uh, evolution of the drum set it wasn't just the evolution of the setup but it was the evolution of kind of the role of each instrument on the yes. drum set yeah yeah, um, yeah yeah because that that changed from the beginning until now you know at the beginning it was very snare drum driven um and then moved to the cymbals and the you know the bass drum started the floor on the four on the floor thing with the upright bass after the tuba mm-hmm. went out of style um so yeah there are all these little points in history when you're like oh that's why we do that on the bass drum <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's yeah. why we do that on the ride um in fact have you seen um fred armison's special i watched some of it um and i i was i was expecting it to be funnier than it was but but uh i should did watch, you get i should watch yeah did you get to it. the part at the end where he goes you probably didn't get to that part at the end no where he basically it's really cool um uh, what's the revive? I think it was Revival Drum Shop from Portland. Uh-huh. They like helped sponsor, but they basically put together like different iterations of the drum kit throughout time. Mm-hmm. So like starting with a very basic first, you know, kit with like the Chinese tom toms, right. and then they had like a twenties kit, and then they had like a, a blues kit and a rock kit. Basically, the way that the drum set has evolved over time, and that was my favorite part of the segment because he goes on each of the kits and he plays like the style that was mostly played on that style of drums. Mm -hmm. And then he would go to the next set and be like, now it's evolved to this. And like, you know, like what you were just saying, like now it was very snare heavy and this is the style of music that they played on this. And then it evolved into this. And then there's like a rock kid and Mm -hmm. it's really, really cool. And, and, you know, very informative as far as the evolution of the kit with music. Yeah, you should check it out. I, I will. I, and I know uh, Daniel Glass also did a, a similar thing that was probably much more in-depth, like the whole Century Project thing. Okay, yeah. Um, but I, I'm sure that Fred Armisen's is funnier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You mentioned that you were uh, the only woman in this jazz department for a while, or at least in the drum department, um, and you know it's very much in the cultural conversation now. We're hearing a lot about um, how women are treated by the film and TV industry. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine that there are many parallels in in the music industry. Um, is that is that something you've experienced? Is that something you have opinions or or views about? Yeah. So. It- it was interesting because I think, you know, being, you know, when, when there would be times where like, let's say we'd all be hanging or jamming or whatever, it's, you know, it's all mostly guys. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think because there's only one female and majority is men, like sometimes they'll almost forget that I'm there. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember that, you know, when I was younger, there were times where they would be talking like normal guys and, you know, maybe they might be talking about like, something like sexual or whatever. And I would just be kind of like, Ooh, I have nothing to contribute to this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it, it's one of those things like, you know, growing as, as when I was younger, it's like you want to be accepted mm-hmm. and you want to be cool. So a lot of, I think when I was younger, I let a lot of those things kind of slide because I was like, well, I don't want to be fussy. I don't want them to be like, Oh, she can't hang. Cause she's like, whatever. Right. Um, and unfortunately, yeah. And unfortunately, like I never felt 
like thank thankfully I was never victimized by anything, but like, mm-hmm. you know, even just like being in those circles where they would be talking about stuff or talking about stuff in a certain way that I wouldn't, that I felt uncomfortable. Like right. I, I wouldn't say anything because I didn't want to be left out mm-hmm. because a lot of, a lot of that music scene is just like the networking and the friendships and being able to hang. Right. Um, but you know, in, in modern, in recent years, because it's become more of the conversation, I think, I'm obviously a lot more aware of it. And I think just having more females around me and just more people on the scene who are aware, like a lot of those things I try not to let slide. And I'm grateful because a lot of the groups I work with are very conscious about that. And Mm -hmm. they're very, you know, they're very adamant about making sure I'm comfortable, making sure I'm safe. Um, and I'm lucky too, because a lot of the groups I work with are, have a lot of females in it. Mm -hmm. And you know, that, that just adds another comfort level and camaraderie. Um, but it was interesting. There was one of my drum mentors and we still, we actually still need to catch up about this. Cause he, we, we actually spoke on a panel together recently and he said some, I forget how it got brought up, but he said something about how I was the first female drum student that he ever had to teach. He actually used to teach at Peabody. Hmm. And he said that, um, when he taught me, he had to change the way he taught and I taught him a lot because of that. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I literally was on the panel and I look over at him and I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> I never knew about this. And then after that, he was like, we need to catch up. Cause like, I want to tell you about that experience. And, you know, I remember there was, a, I don't know if you read, there was this article that came out, um, I guess a few months ago at this point. Um, but it was, um, who was it? It was a, it was like a scan. It was a pretty scandalous article because they talked about like, you know, they were talking about, it was a two jazz artists and they were like sexualizing women and talking about like, they mentioned something about like, you know, um, women love, like, I don't know when you play this type of music and, you know, right. the, you know, they dropped some like explicit terms about the female anatomy in it. Do you remember, you know what I'm talking about? I, vaguely. Yeah. This was like two, two months ago, maybe. Whoever it was, yeah. it was two very prominent jazz artists mm-hmm. and, you know, they were talking, they were like basically talking in a very sexual way about women mm-hmm. and associating that to jazz music. And, you know, it was very scandalous because obviously like a lot of people were not cool with that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the point with that, and, you know, I think that is true is that like, that is just a reflection of just kind of how the jazz scene has been is like, there's a lot of. And, and I think it's because it's a, it's a type of music that's very deep and very emotional and sensual. Mm-hmm. And, um, for a lot of people, they, you know, when they kind of equivalent that or equate that to those kind of sexual experiences, maybe it helps them to like feel the music better mm-hmm. or helps them to like understand it better. Um, but you know, in a lot of ways it can be in a way that's maybe derogatory towards women. Yeah. And those were kind of the tones that I felt like not necessarily people directing it to me, but just like generally I noticed certain conversations, it would kind of be in that kind of tone. Right. And and in a way, like I almost wondered, did my teacher mean that like, you know, was he used to describing drumming or certain things to his male students in that kind of way and then realized that to me. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, that's a conversation we need to finish and have. um, And, you know, I, I think definitely because people are having those conversations about it now, like that's maybe shifting some things, maybe not. Yeah. Uh, 
Um, and in in what you're saying, I think one of the one of the points you're making is that even even if uh, you know you or or any woman in um, the the music industry or any industry isn't uh, explicitly victimized by someone, there's still this climate that you have to negotiate, right? That right. men it's a climate that men create that men don't have to negotiate. That when you come into it, like even you know, like you said, even if you are not victimized in a specific way. It's just in the air, and you have to deal with it. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Um, have you found the the jazz world to be more misogynistic than the pop world? Hmm. I would say... I think so. Mm. Um, you know, in and I think a lot of it is just like with the demographic of it, you know, there's a lot more males in jazz. Yeah. It's very much always kind of been a boys club. Yeah. And, um, you know, in the pop scene, you just see so many more females involved, Mm -hmm. I think instrumentally, but also like, you know, a lot of female singers and stuff. Right. Um, there's something about the jazz circle, you know, it's, it's always been very competitive Mm -hmm. and, you know, some people might even contest like some jazz musicians only play for other jazz musicians, you know, because (laughs) it's true. It is true. Sometimes it's absolutely true. Unfortunately, like, you know, that's why there, there's a smaller following and Mm -hmm. it, you know, there's there, people don't really listen. Not as many people as before listen to like jazz. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's because it's a very complex music. And I think some people feel like it's on a, they can't listen to it cause they don't understand what's happening. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and I, but like, you know, I, I think of all the different jam sessions and open mics or whatever I've been to. And there's all, it's always, it's always a jazz jam or something where like people are just being weird or cocky or vibing you hardcore. Right. And that was one of the, why I stopped doing it for a while I was like you know what like I've played bigger stages I've played for bigger audiences different kinds of music where people actually like appreciate and want to hear this like I don't deserve like I don't I don't want to just like sit around and play in these like small little places where no one's actually listening or cares about the music to people who are just going to vibe me out right because I I don't know whatever can't play as cool as this person or whatever and like you know I I think there's a lot of that kind of competitive competitiveness and edginess in in those scenes just because it's very i mean you know there's not a whole lot of opportunity per se right it's a small pie that everybody's trying to get a piece of yeah (laughs) and for and i think for a lot of people that's like their only chance to shine Mm -hmm. you know and like they take that like really seriously whereas like you know for me like obviously like i want to play my best and i want to share this moment playing with people and i want to get better but like that's not all I have, Mm -hmm. you know? And so like, I've definitely found, I think in the pop circle, just people are more welcoming and accepting, um, just because it, you know, there's not that kind of like competitive, like I got to play better than everybody else. And I'm going to need to show off that I can play all this stuff or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, they, they just really care more about like, like a good song and a good show and like good music and good vibes and right, stuff. Right. And, you know, and I'm not trying to like generalize or stereotype different scenes, obviously, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, some I, generalizations that, can my, be made. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, you know that's just my that's just been my experience overall. Yeah. In, in addition to um, the kind of the hang aspect of music, um, you mentioned you know as as a woman in music, you find yourself in these hang situations with a bunch of guys. What about the the musical situations? Do you do you find that? Um, your uh, your capabilities, your input, your opinions um, are as welcome or as valued as your male colleagues. I think so um, because one, you know, and that's why I've I've made sure to do a good part of just like really learning music, like studying the music, get having good chops, yeah. and just like you know having that credibility. And then of course when you come to a situation and like I can play then like that that's like the first gateway point like all right she can play right and then of course you know if i'm getting called for a gig then obviously that's them putting their trust in me and you know i've always i've always written music since i was young and Mm -hmm. pretty much i think that's one of the valuable things i bring when someone hires me is that i always have this kind of arrangement creative mindset going into it. So like if, if I hear something and I'm like, Oh, we should try this or we should do this. I say it and I'm pretty adamant about it. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, people respect me for that because not a lot of people bring stuff to the table. If you're a hired gun, it's just like, all right, I show up and play. But Mm -hmm. like for me, like I really try and give what I can to like maybe bring the show to another level or add an element to it. And, you know, I think it goes hand in hand. Like I work with people who respect me in the same way the people that want me and respect me are the ones who are going to hire me. Right. And so I'm pretty I'm pretty lucky cuz you know even like the all male bands that I play with like they're very respectful of my background, what I bring and they love like what they see like you know they love my videos and that I was a jazz major and all that stuff. So mm-hmm. like there's already this mutual respect when yeah. I'm brought in the situation. And to me that's that's just what it's all about like you know in the same way, like maybe I might not respect a certain other musician because of their personal life or things that they've said. And, you know, those are, those are just things that you have to kind of know and kind of do your homework on before you get into a situation. But Mm -hmm. for the most part, I find that, um, people are respectful of my musicality and what I can bring to the table, which is great. Right. The reason I asked that is because I recently had an experience, uh, with a female colleague. Uh, we ended up on a project together. Um, and in talking with her about it, I was I was telling her like I'm you know I'm so glad so and so brought you onto this project. It was a great idea. Uh, you're perfect for it, and going on and on. And and she said, well, actually, it was it was my idea. And in that moment, I realized like I was I was trying to give her a compliment for being talented. But it's it's one thing to think of a woman as talented. It's another thing to think of her as capable. You yeah. know. And I was kind of selling her short, just assuming that this was a dude's idea. Um, right. So, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, that was a little check myself moment, uh, mm-hmm. for me that I've been thinking about in terms of, you know, all the women that I work with and all the women that I see on the scene and come in contact with, um, yeah. you know, uh, so I would, I would advise my, my male colleagues to, <laughs> to do the same. Yeah, they're they're not just talented. They're highly capable. Yeah. And, you know, I think unfortunately, like, you know, and, and the fact that you are aware of that now and are being attentive to that is like what needs to happen. And, you know, the fact that you're doing that is awesome. I think it's just like every, most people are just like conditioned to believe the opposite that women aren't capable. And I think that's just how 
society's attitude has been towards women in, in mm-hmm. the last however many decades. I think now more so than ever, those, you know, the, the tides are turning and the, those shifts are happening because people are voicing, you know, that kind of stuff and what's wrong with it. And, you know, a lot of what empowers us is when, you know, people like you and, you know, like people on the scene, like actually remind, you know, their brothers and like their dudes, like, Hey, no, actually that's wrong. Like, you know, this person is very much capable to like, great support system that I have here, like musicians on the scene who have the credibility and who've also done stuff, but who also vouch for me, like, you know, and, and that really is what's going to help, you know, help break down those barriers and help hopefully break down the sexism and the thoughts that women aren't capable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it starts with that. Well, thank you so much for, for talking. This was really fun. Of course. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And thank you for introducing us to DC. Um, we, you know, we try to get try to get all over the map uh, on the podcast, and it sounds like a really cool scene that, that you're a part of, and it sounds like you're you're one of the reasons it's cool. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Well, thanks again, and uh, continued success. Thank you. You too. Isn't she cool? I had a great time talking with her. If you're following us on Instagram, and we hope you are, be on the lookout for Isabel to do a takeover of the Working Drummer account this Sunday, July 22nd. She's going to take us around her world there in D.C., and we're looking forward to that. Once again, subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher and iTunes. Leave us a rating and review. Tell a friend about us. Anything and everything helps us grow, and we appreciate it all. Come on back next week for Matt Krause's interview. Thanks, as always, to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.